there. We don't have pews. There should be black Bibles there that you can look it up. It is on the screen. Romans chapter 7. Um, this is the third of four messages from Romans chapter 7, but it's uh, probably the seventh or eighth in this section of Romans where the apostle now has explained how everyone needs a Savior, that there is no way to get around it, that the moralist, the Jew, uh, the immoralist, the atheist, the, 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 the person who holds himself up to the law, the Pharisee, <clears throat> all of them need to be saved. All of them needed to be rescued. And uh, he, he takes us through what that looks like and, um, and then takes us through what we would call justification, that God now has brought salvation through the work of his son to his people. And so chapter 6 and 7, we move into this section of what do we now do with the law and the law of God? What place has it in our lives? Um, and uh, it is something that Christians wrestle with all the time. What do we do with the law of God? How are we now who live under grace? How are we now as New Testament Christians? What place does the law have? And so that's what we've looked at specifically the last three weeks. And um, he has taught us through this by doing this question and answer teaching method. So in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, <clears throat> This grace of God is so wonderful. Uh, as I've just prayed in my prayer, no matter how far down uh, the, the plunging of looking at our hearts and sin, no matter how far down it goes, grace goes all the more. <clears throat> and so the question in 6.1 is, if this is true, right, if God is so glorified and and taking the worst and the filthiest, and not just not just not looking at their sin, but saying, "I am going to provide for myself at the cost of my sins." But I'm going to provide everything to make you right. Would it would it be even more glorifying if we continued to sin just to prove His love? And so uh, he he starts this. Uh, it, it's like each hymn has a different stanza, but it starts the same way. Are we to continue in sin? As some people claim in chapter 6, 1, that grace may abound. By no means. Right, so we find that word, by no means, or in some of your tra uh, translations, God forbid, uh, is a very emphatic, no way, of course not. How could you ever think that? So 6, 1, we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 6, 15, are we to sin now because we're not under law? but under grace. Kind of a twist on that same question. By no means. Uh, and last week, 7-7. Seven, seven. Um, uh, is, is the law sinful? By no means. And so last week we looked at the section previous to this, verses uh, 7 to 12, and, and we, we came back with the conclusion. What he says is the law in the life of a believer... Uh, it defines sin, right, and how, and how we need it. A, de a definition. What is sin? Right, the catechisms and the confessions of faith say it's any conformity or any, 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 any want or lack of conforming ourselves to the will of God or disobedience to the word of God. The law defines sin, and it's so wonderful for that. There is, a, there is a safety for a Christian in the law of God. Here's what God loves. Here's what is right. Here's what is wrong. Um, it is a wonderful gift 
that our God is not a distant God that says, try to figure out what makes me happy. I'm mad at you, but I'm not going to tell you why. (laughs) Uh, The law defines sin. But he said also, in our own sinful nature, the law provokes sin. And so he had used the the illustration of coveting. It's like, I didn't know what it was to covet until the law said, don't covet. And then all of a sudden, I coveted. Right? And we talk about that with, like, even with kids. If you put three apples out there and you say, don't eat this one, they're waiting for you to leave, right? They're like, this one must be the best, right? And I'm going to take a bite of it, right? Don't think of an elephant. Everybody's thinking of an elephant, right? It, it, it says the law does that. It, it, it creates this thing, and, and somehow in our hearts we're, we're provoked to sin against it. And he said, thirdly, last week we looked at this, that the law also condemns sin. So in the previous chapter, in the, all the previous chapters of Romans, the law was to drive people to God. Right? It, it was not, and so when he uses the term under law or under grace, we were not to live under the law as if the only way God would accept me is if I somehow miraculously kept all of his laws. Now, we talk about Pharisees, and you read about them in the New Testament, and, and the Pharisees were that. Like you would want to do business with a Pharisee. You would want to have them cutting your grass and living next door. You would want a Pharisee's daughter to be your babysitter. Right? They they were so in love with the law, but they were under it. And for them it became very difficult if someone was to poke at, hey, you didn't do this exactly right. Why why would they get so upset? And and so when I say that sometimes in churches, this understanding of the law Some of the toughest people to convince that they're sinners are Christians. Like, I've repented my sin. I follow. He lives in my heart. Uh, As a youth pastor, I had people say that. You know, my my daughter gave her life to Christ, and she hasn't lied ever since. I'm like, boy, are you an idiot. (laughs) Right? She's never lied since then. She's never, like, oh, my word. What did you think happened in conversion? And so it's wonderful where he places this text. He's like, you've, you've run to Christ. You have thrown yourself at him and said, God, have mercy on me. Forgive my sins. Receive me as yours. I don't know exactly how all this works, but I believe. I believe that Christ came. He suffered in my place, and he rose again from the dead, and he's sitting at your right hand, and he is interceding for me, and he has wrapped himself around me. And when I present myself to you, it is not me. It's him. I believe that. What am I going to do with sin? And that's where we get Romans 7. And I'm telling you, it is such a, such a gift for us. It's confusing. It's controversial. But it's such a gift. And so here's kind of how that thought goes. All right? This overarching theme, whenever in the text we are told, maybe we can sin because of this. Maybe we can sin because of this. Maybe uh, we're not under law, so we can do whatever we want. And he says, no, no, no. God forbid. No, no, no. Here's the overarching theme. Our God hates sin. He hates it. Every bit of it. He hates what it does to his creation. He hates what it does to human relationships. He hates what it does to those beloved, precious souls that he's breathed life into. He hates what it does. And so you think about that, and then you think, hey, God hates sin. I sin. How can God not hate me? He sends His Son to save us from our sins. He's done this for me. Yay, I'm released. I still sin. I 
still wrestle with things. I still get angry. I still am drawn to put my faith and trust in money or reputation. I still sin. So he must hate me. We come to this conclusion. Christians sometimes come to this conclusion. Um, I prayed to him and I can't stop doing this. I can't stop thinking this. I can't stop being this. Uh, He is either unable to help me or sin just doesn't matter to him. God doesn't care about the sinful thoughts. Um, And it's just going to, I'm just going to, it's just, I'm done until I die and see him. And then we get this section. Romans 7, 13 to 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Did that which is good. So verse 12 in our context, he says, the law is righteous and holy and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Sometimes in a church or in a community of believers, someone who we think really highly of, uh, it comes out they've committed some grievous sin. Or some couple that you you see and it seems like they're so wonderful to each other, uh, but unbeknownst to them, you're sitting in the plane behind them and you hear them talk. Um, And you're like, Maybe that's never happened to you, um, but it happens, and and you 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 kind of think one of two things. You think, um, <laughs> wow, if this is how they are, and they're so amazing, what hope do I have, right? Or you think, man, I'm glad <laughs> they fight, <laughs> which is probably what more of us feel like. Huh, I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one that does that and I can't tell you how many times that that little thought has come out when I meet and talk with people like I'm sure I'm the only one in your church that struggles with this I'm sure I'm the only one in in the church and if people knew that about me and I often just shake my head and say you you really have no idea what people are struggling with what I love about this and and in the outline I think I call it um, Paul Psalm 51 
um, when we were going through some of the Psalms, I said 51 was my favorite because it's so just real and true and nitty-gritty. And here it is the same. Um, it, it, it is uh, one of the controversial things is which, you know, which person is this? What type of person is this? Um, and I'll run through it quickly, but they usually fall down on one of three different types of people. This, this specific section, Romans 7, 13 to 20, uh, some say it's got to be an unregenerate man. Paul is here talking about either himself before he became a Christian or someone else. Um, because the thing of these phrases, uh, verse 14, I'm of the flesh. All right, so um, there, is, there is two words for flesh, and, and most Bible translations do a really good job of separating those, okay? So often when you see the word flesh, it's the Greek word sarx, and it, it, it doesn't mean flesh like skin or muscle. It means carnal desires. It means sinful desires. Okay, so when we read through this in the next section, I am of the flesh, don't live under the flesh, but under the spirit. Uh, it is not Gnosticism. It's not the body is always bad and the spirit is good, which many Christians kind of fall into this Christian Gnosticism. You think you hear about them talking about heaven uh, and then you're like, no, we're going to live on a new earth. We're going to have, you know, we're going to have glorified bodies. The bodies aren't bad. The flesh isn't bad. But in the Greek, sarx usually, I think just about all the time, refers to these sinful desires. Soma uh, is, is just the Greek word for body. So they're two different words. And so when he talks about uh, the flesh or sarx, he is saying, I'm under the flesh. So verse 14, he says that. Verse 17, uh, sin dwells within me. Verse 18, I, I, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry out. Verse 19, the evil I don't want to do. It's what I keep doing. Verse 20, sin dwells within me. So some people take that and say, he's obviously not talking about a Christian. He's talking about Paul before he became a Christian um, or some other person. The second way people look at it is no it's a christian who is still kind of trying to live under the law he's a christian who is still looking at the law of god for their justification god god owes me because i'm trying and i'm better than the average christian um, because verse 14 we know that the law is spiritual so there is a, a sense that that person who he is describing knows that the law is right it's spiritual it's worth verse 15 uh, I do not do what I want, which means there is things that I want to do. I'm aware that there are things I want to do. It's, I, want, I want to be someone better. I want to do things better. I want to think better. Uh, verse 16, if I don't do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. So um, is this a Christian living under the law? Verse 18, I have a desire to do what's right. Um, but most of the Reformed the theologians, um, and even before the Reformation, looked at Romans 7 and said, no, this, this is Paul the Apostle. This is he himself being honest with his readers. And I will tell you, it's one of the reasons I trust the Scriptures. In the Scriptures, we don't have an autobiography of the Apostle Paul written by one of his fanboys that says he was a great guy, he did this, 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 he's wonderful, you need to be like him. You have a biography. 
when he says, and it's beautiful if you trace his writings from when he first was converted um, to his last letters, he goes from being the greatest sinner to of all the sinners, I'm the worst. And people say, is he being overly humble? No, he has gotten closer and closer to the Lord. And he's gotten closer and closer to the Lord. He's had this freedom in this relationship of grace and this covenant that God has with him to say, this is honestly what I think and I feel and I wrestle. Um, and so that's how I take it. And not just me, Francis Schaeffer, Keller, Stott, all the other reformers that I know of take it this way, that he is talking about himself. And again, when you think about context and text, so the context is how do we now live with the law? We've received Christ by faith. How do we now live with the law? And I tell you, if you've tried to follow the law of God at all, you have felt this. Right? If you've not felt this, you may not be saved. You may not be a Christian. If you've not felt this wrestling of, here is what God's word says he loves. Here's what I know I'm supposed to do. And I, I don't want to do it. Or I, I, I can't do it. Or I keep failing. Um, and so this text, I, I, I believe, is being taught as a Christian who is living between being declared righteous in God's sight and being actually sanctified and purified. Uh, it is addressed to all of us in this room who have received and asked for Christ to be our Savior, who have submitted our lives to him. Um, the other thing I said, it's context, it's text. Um, Paul switches, and, and it is an obvious switch. He switches from you and your to I and me. That's not a mistake. He's very careful. He's very technical in his writings. Uh, he switches from, say, in chapter 6, uh, you must consider yourselves. Uh, verse 12, don't let sin reign in your body. Verse 13, don't present your members as instruments of sin, but present yourselves. Verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you, for you are under the law, but under grace. You're not under law, but under grace. And then he comes here and he said, did that which is good then bring death to me? And I'm telling you, it, is, it, it should be to all of us that breath of fresh air that this great apostle who had such great wisdom and insight, who had walked with Christ, who was, inter Christ intersected him, the risen Christ intersected him and said, you're going to be mine. Took him away and discipled him. This, this, this man, who wrote the largest portions of the New Testament, says, I wrestle with indwelling sin. I wrestle with indwelling sin. One of the reasons in our order of worship, we always have a confession of sin because you know what? Everybody who walks through that door will need to confess their sins. It is a way of life. It was that way from the very beginning. The law came and then came Leviticus. The law came and then God says to Moses, when you sin, when they sin, for there is no one that will not sin, when they sin, here is how you are made right. Here is how you are cleansed. Here is how relationship is restored. And what a beautiful gift that we don't worship Paul the Apostle. Right? What a beautiful gift. That this Apostle who we can think highly of, we can, we can be mesmerized by his, his knowledge, um, 
to know that, yes, this man, too, wrestled with indwelling sin. And Paul now is using this opportunity to say, by the way, what I'm telling you, it also applies to me. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Oh, no, of course not. God forbid. No way. Um, what, is it, what, what, what is he saying here? Well, our sermon in the sentence this morning is that struggling against sin and sinning doesn't negate one's salvation. In fact, it is often a sign of the Spirit's work in us. I think if we get this part wrong, right, if you as a Christian get this part wrong, you are robbed of so much joy in the Christian life. You are robbed of freedom. You are robbed of the ability to worship God because you are looking at your record under the law of God and you're saying, surely he won't accept me. He has given, he has given, he has given, and I still do this. You will miss out so much. I'm telling you, if I don't explain it well this morning, then don't rest until you figure it out. Um, this is meant to bring relief. When I do premarital counseling for couples, one of my favorite questions to ask them, uh, I've probably told you guys this before, you know, I'll look at the wife-to-be or the husband-to-be, and I'll say, hey, what kind of sinner are you expecting to marry? What? What kind of sinner? What kind of sinner are you expecting to marry? Like, what, what do you mean? Well, first off, you know you're marrying a sinner, right? I, I mean, if you don't know that, you better go back to square one. I'm just asking you, what kind of sinner are you expecting to marry? Are you expecting to marry the kind of sinner that when you point out their sin, they, they fear relationship is gone? When you point out their sin, they have to defend and blame shift and point out your sin. Or are you marrying the kind of sinner that when you point out their sin, they go to the gospel. They ask for your forgiveness and thank you for it. You're going to marry the type of person that you agree, God is bringing you into my life so that you may show blind spots in our living together and doing life together. You will find things about me that I never, ever noticed. But thanks be to God for everything you find out. It's much worse than you know. It's much worse than I know. But his grace is much deeper and fuller than I could ever imagine. What type of sinner are you marrying? And so Paul's like, hey, let me tell you, here's what the law has done to me. So we're going to run through this passage fairly quickly from this point forward. Three things. He says, first, that the law forces me to acknowledge my innate sinfulness. Right? The law of God forces me to acknowledge my innate sin sinfulness. It's the experience of all the saints in the Bible. It is Psalm 51. It's every writer in the Bible. Uh, none of them. I mean, I've been reading through Genesis again. And I mean, you think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, we probably wouldn't allow them to be an officer in the church, maybe not a member in our church, right? Awful things. These men who were declared righteous because they believed, 
right? Abraham may be the worst. David's horrible, too. I mean, just all there. The Bible doesn't say, hey, be like David, be like Samuel, be like uh, Samson. What a terrible person, right? It says, follow them as they follow Christ. Follow them in their relationship to the Lord and trust yourself to the one who loves your soul and will wash you and cleanse you and delights to present you. The law forces me to acknowledge my innate sinfulness. I love Jack Miller. Maybe you've read some of his stuff, but he was the founder of uh, World Harvest Mission, the writer of Sonship. Some of us have done the gospel-centered life, gospel transformation. He was kind of the one that kicked off a, a lot of that. Um, and he used to introduce himself this way. Hi, I'm Jack Miller, and I am a recovering Pharisee. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jack Miller. I'm a recovering Pharisee. Jack Miller, I, I know the word of God, and I constantly want to be declared right by what I do more than what Christ has done. Justification, being saved, being converted, becoming a Christian, it is not, and I think this is a concept you have to get, it is not an infusion of righteousness, right? It is being imputed to us. Those two words are very important. Protestant Reformation, many lives were lost. Lots of books were written over the understanding of how is a human being declared righteous. We are declared righteous. It is imputed. It is given to Christians by their faith as a free gift. We're never to boast about it. We're never saying, I'm better. I'm better off because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me, not infused. So, again, many Protestants live and practice like Roman Catholics. The, the original Roman Catholics, that it was, uh, I do the sacrament, I say these things, and righteousness is infused to me. It, it's as if you're playing a video game. You know, you have your health, and you start, you know, you, you start, it starts going down, and you look for one of those white boxes with a red thing on it, a red cross on it, and you're like, yes, my health is back up, all right? It, it's kind of like we live like that. Like, I'm righteous, I went to church, I got my health score is way up here. I haven't done this, I haven't done that, and, and, and oh no, why did she have to jog wearing that? Why did I have to respond this way? I need to be made righteous again, right? And so you understand the power that the church wielded over people. We are the ones who will dispense righteousness to you. We are the ones, when your tank is empty, we are the ones who come here and we tell you, these are the things you do. And we understand the hook that has, right? If, oh, I can feel good before God because I have done this, I have done that, I have done this. But no, justification is being declared right. It is imputed to us. It is the identity that God gives us as adopted children. And nothing we do will ever add to that. It couldn't add to that. But the law then comes and it forces me to acknowledge my sinfulness. Uh, the confession says, what's justification? It's an act of God's grace where he pardons our sins. He accepts us as righteous only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So when Paul says here in verse 13, that what is good was what good bring death? No, no, no. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. We talked about that last week, that the law has to come and kind of slay you. It has to, it has to do its work to say, I am not okay before God. 
And I don't know if you ever feel that, but a Christian will often go through that. I'm not what I've been called to be. I'm not what I want to become. And I got to tell you, don't give up. Our God is committed to you, and He will stubbornly work out His righteousness in your life. He will not leave you or forsake you. He is not surprised. He will patiently instruct and grow and push. You know we went through a tough year last year. Those of you who know us, we went through a tough year, right? And, and it is a beautiful thing even just a year later to see here is what our God is doing. Here is some beautiful things he has brought through forced humility. Did that which is good bring death? No. Verse 13, it was sin producing death through what is good. And he says, in order that, it's purpose, in order that. Why? In order that sin might be shown to be sin. Right? One of the things I pray for with my kids, Lord, don't let them get away with stuff. Don't let them get away with stuff. Let them get caught. Why? Because I didn't want their sin to go without consequence. One of the hardest things we do as a parent is allowing our kids to suffer consequence. We want to take it away from them. We remember how it feels to get caught. Remember how it feels to break something and have to pay for something. And yet, that's what he's saying the law does. In the life of a believer, it, 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 it helps make sin sinful and awful. And a Christian can't live in it and can't enjoy it. Right? If you come in our service to the point of confession every week and you're like, well, I just really don't know if there's anything I need to confess, then, then, then you should be concerned. You should be concerned. Lord, is the Spirit not working in me? Have you quit, in some sense, coaching me up? Work your way in me, Father. Right? I mean, how long will a kid go to a coach if the coach is not going to correct something? coach is not going to promise that we're going to make you better and it might be painful and you're going to do something that seems unnatural but you're going to have to trust me the result is going to be great and wonderful so sin has to be shown as sinful it's funny because we work so hard to try and make sin seem less sinful we even call it things like mistakes um, we blame shift we talk of the spirit of the law uh, and if we really think of the spirit of the law, it's always much deeper than the letter of the law. It concerns our hearts. Well, here's, again, I say this should be a relief. You, you should stop being surprised at your sinfulness. Right? You should stop being surprised. You know, and I've heard Christians say that. I've really let myself down. And I'm like, well, that's okay. You know, that's, that's all right. You'll, you'll get over you. Right? I've let myself down. And I don't, I don't I, you know, it sounds condescending. I'm like, I'm like, it is okay. It's okay to let yourself down and to fall in the arms of your Savior. He knows what is there and he has freed you from that. Um, sin brings death. No, sin uh, shows me uh, that it is, uh, it, 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 it brings death. And as he said in chapter 3, verse 23, it's wages, it's death. And even in Christians, we see it. Um, so stop being surprised. Sometimes, like I said, people think they'll shock me. Um, no, if anyone's going to be shocked, you'd be shocked if you knew uh, my heart that Christ has washed 
and continues to claim. So the law forces us to acknowledge our sinfulness. The law puts it out there and says, here's the mark and you have missed it. Here's what you're to do and you haven't done it. Here's what you're to love and you haven't loved it. Here's what you are to refuse and you haven't refused it. The law says, uh, I'm going to show you the sinfulness of sin. Secondly, acknowledging sin causes conflict. And that's what he's got here, right? He has got conflict. I call it Christian schizophrenia when he says, I've got this inside of me and this inside of me. It's like there's two people living inside of me. The law causes conflict. It says this is right and, and because this is right, this is not right. And it causes conflict. I don't understand my actions. I don't do what I want, but the thing I, the very thing I hate, I do. I have a desire to do what's right in verse 18, but I don't carry it out. I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil, it's not what I keep, I keep on doing. And I want to tell you, if you're not a Christian, be warned. It is not accept Christ and you get health, wealth, and a really cool spouse. No, it's you accept Christ and you are then at war with the indwelling sin in your life. You are then brought into conflict. I said before, though, it is a conflict that you will not lose because Christ is with you. But it's a conflict. Um, and Christianity is not getting less offensive, even in our culture. It's getting more offensive. And there may be some really great things that happen when it costs to be a Christian. You really do have to think about this. Um, I may lose customers. Oh, no. Right? I may lose friendships. Um, and so for many people, the conversion to Christianity, it brings a conflict. Our enemy is relentless. Our enemy never stops. Um, but our Savior is greater. Uh, quickly, when I mention conflict, there's two kinds, of course. There's the external conflict, and that's probably what we think about most of the time. Calling others out on sin and sinfulness uh, again, it's why I, I love how we orchestrate our worship. That anybody who walks in here, anybody who sees anybody come to this table cannot, should not believe that the person taking the bread and the person drinking the cup thinks that they're right with God because of what they've done. It's the leveling table for Christians. But the external conflict is what we think about. Um, even you think about even the term pride month to take that term pride right it is an affront to a holy god who says no we shouldn't take pride in heterosexuality we shouldn't take pride in our gender we shouldn't take no god opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble it brings conflict external conflict but primarily what he is talking about here is this internal conflict there is a true good that I'm aware of. There is a true good and right that I want to do, that I want to be, that I want to become. There are good deeds, good thoughts, loving things that I know I should do and I, and I want to do them. And yet I find myself at times not doing them. There's idolatry that I, that I have to root out I've been watching that Netflix series on the Tour de France. In uh, episode two, one of the team leaders uh, says, I have no identity 
outside of this kingdom. And I'm watching it. And my heart's breaking. I have no identity, he says, outside of this team. That is the hold of idolatry. And Christians, you will face it. Can I get an identity through my good works? Can I get an identity through my marital status? Can I get an identity through my kids performing? Uh, we, we, we have this internal conflict here. And oftentimes we celebrate, we present the law to people as, as just the part that convicts of sin. But when we see the law this way, we see the law as beautiful and drawing us. Um, but it's, it's a conflict. Next week, verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, he says. Um, now, I know I'm kind of running out of time, but he doesn't end the letter here. Okay, I want to make sure you get that. Some of you won't be back next week. He doesn't end the letter here. But what he does here, digging so deeply into the nature of sin, the ubiquitousness of it, the stain and the pollution of it, it makes Romans 8 so wonderful. Right, Romans 8 is not what we lead with. We led with Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being poured out against all of humanity. We'll get to Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. We will get there. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land the plane here. Um, but I just... I just want to tell you that, 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 that it, we, we get there. Uh, the conflict then leads to a conclusion. We see this in verses 14, 17, and 20. Uh, we know that law is spiritual. It's no longer I who do it in verse 17, but sin that dwells in me. Uh, verse 20, I, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So what is to blame for this? It is not the law of God. In fact, Christian, you should study it and love it. The law of God, it is beautiful, it is pure, it is a guide, it is a path. Uh, who's to blame? It's not the law, it's not me. I've been declared righteous. I've been declared righteous. That, that, that person, he's saying, that's not me. Now, in no way is he saying we don't own up to what we've done He's saying before the courtroom of God, that person is not me. He says it's sin. It's indwelling sin. It is this flesh that is in me. It is not yet. It is not yet put to death. I originally titled it from D-Day to V-Day because somehow that's how a Christian lived. There was a there was, a, there was the, the D-Day invasion where the, 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 the Third Reich, we, we knew uh, that it was going to collapse. But it wasn't until V-Day <laughs> when it was finally rooted out. And for a Christian, uh, we live in some sense uh, between this D-Day, my sins have been paid for, I am secure in Christ, and V-Day, the day when I see him, the day when this battle is over. So what are we to do? Um, quickly, uh, I just have three things that we should do. First, we count and recount who you are. Who am I in Christ? Who does God the Father say I am? Um, my first class in seminary, we spent weeks on just those statements. Pages and pages of 
here's what the gospel says you are. I thought this is profound for men studying to be a preacher. Your identity is wrapped up in the work of Christ and being bound to him, being adopted. What we said at the beginning, this idea of union with Christ, being joined to him. What do we do? We count and recount who we are. We do not let our sinful nature, all right? We do not let even sinful patterns. If we've been a Christian for 20 years and we still struggle with that same sinful pattern, we do not say, that is who I am. That is who I was. That is who I believe God will remove and one day be gone. We count and recount who we are. We don't let sin reign, and we definitely don't let sin define who we are. This is not me, not as God's will. God will receive me, and sin wants to control and destroy me. Secondly, we have to remember God's word. Next week, we get to 7, 24, and 25. He says, wretched man I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, but thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thirdly, hear the exhortations of those who've gone before us. Right? This is Paul who's gone before us. Hear those exhortations. Uh, I'm going to use for the benediction Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, but I'm going to read it here now even before communion in our last song. The writer to Hebrews says this, therefore, right after he's recounted in chapter 11, all those who've gone before us, the, the Old Testament Hall of Fame there in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside the weight, the sin, which clings so closely. Again, here's another writer. This isn't Paul the Apostle. We don't know who the writer to Hebrews is. And he is using, or she is using, first person plural. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. What a wonderful gift it is to us that we don't just get a system of rules that say, if you want to stay in my good graces, you just have to, you have to follow all these things. That you are different than us, Lord, and, and, and you are patient with us, and you know that it is hard for us to believe these things. It is hard to believe that you have adopted a people to be yours and that we are not constantly in this state of, am I a beloved child or am I the bad kid? Oh, Lord, set these elements aside, this bread and this wine. As we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, that we proclaim to the world in the midst of a conflict, we belong to Christ. What can you do to me? God's Son pleads on my behalf. What sin can you point out? God's Son pleads on my behalf. What failure uh, do I wrestle with? God's Son pleads on my behalf. We might rest in the finished work of Christ. We might glorify you in our faith. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.